to Inside the Helix, a podcast presentation from DNA Genetics. Throughout this series, we focus on all things that matter to the pork industry. You'll hear from our award-winning team of geneticists, veterinarians, animal care providers, nutritionists, and other industry-leading experts. We'll explore pig production from genetic improvement all the way to meat quality. Listen along as we take a deep dive inside the DNA Helix. Today we're going to spend some time talking about the third pillar of DNA Genetics, Five Pillars of Reproductive Care. My guest is Brady McNeil. Brady is a multiplication business lead with DNA Genetics. Thanks for joining us today, Brady. Hey, Curtis. Glad to be here. Brady, we've already talked about guilt development and estrus detection. Today we're going to spend some time talking about body condition management. So why is body condition scoring so important? Yeah, it's it's really one of the the number one items that we'll talk about when doing walkthroughs within sow farms. Uh, you might think that the, the condition of the sows isn't all that important. Uh, if you, you know, just kind of think about the olden days when we were, you know, thinking of animals in a barnyard, they always probably looked a little plump. And a lot of people might think, oh, hey, that's how we need to run our animals. But if you think about some of the other industries out there, specifically like the dairy industry uh, and what a dairy cow looks like when it's in peak production, it is on the, the thinner side of things, but that's really how you maximize productivity. And that's the same way with the swine industry, the, the gestating sow. We want her to look in an athletic body condition is what we would call that uh, to really maximize her performance. Because if we can get her in the right body condition going into farrowing, she is going to have the highest lactation feed intake that she possibly can have, or we give her the highest likelihood to do that. And if we can get that much feed into her, we'll have higher uh, weaning weights, We'll have reduced wean to estrus intervals, and we'll have increased total born on her subsequent litter. So really that, that lactation intake, which will be coming up in some, some other podcasts is absolutely critical to the success of the farm, but how you get that and how you set yourself up for success with that is having the sows in the right condition going into farrowing. The other thing is overfeeding sows costs you money. You're just throwing your money away. Uh, if we would just use the example of something simple like a pound of additional feed per day that you're potentially overfeeding these females by, which would not be uncommon in a lot of our walkthroughs, that pound will cost you around a buck fifty in additional cost per wean pig. And how we would get there uh, is if we assume you know around a sixteen cent per day cost over the course of that gestation, we're looking at over nineteen dollars per sow per gestation. Uh, and divide that by her litter size. That's how we get to that dollar fifty in additional costs. So if you think about the profit margin on some of these weaning pigs that we're producing, or on our even our market hogs, uh, how far can that extra buck fifty really go? And it's it's something that doesn't take extra time, doesn't take extra effort. It's just making sure that we're feeding these females the right way from the start. The other thing is, as we're in pen gestation, this is another reason why body condition scoring becomes absolutely critical. Is more and more of the industry is going to, to group cell housing. It's going to prop 12 production. And as we start mixing females and as we start managing females in a group cell housing situation, having them be as uniform in their body condition from the start can really pay dividends down the road. Uh, we all can you know, list examples of those big bully sows pushing the rest of those sows out of the way. But if all those females can go into that pen in a similar condition, if they're all on the thinner side or they're all on the heavier side, then we can feed to that group of females instead of to the just the average of the population and, and hope that the, the big ones don't eat too much and the, the little ones don't get enough feed. Within 
ESF type system where we can individually feed. We don't necessarily have to worry about that as much, but in the group housing situations where we're doing more shoulder stanchions, some floor feeding, different feeding strategies along those lines, uh, it definitely can, can pay dividends to make sure our females are in the right condition before we start mixing them. Brady, you bring up some really good points there. And, and I think I'm guilty myself of looking historically, and you kind of like to see those those plumper animals. But but really, like you said, you are basically throwing money out the door there. So let's look at maybe the different ways that producers can body condition score, because there's a variety of ways and methods that are out there. Yeah, there's really three main options that producers have as we start looking at body condition scoring. And the, the old standby would be a visual body condition scoring and or, you know, palpating the animal, uh, putting our hands on the spine bone and the hip bones and seeing if we can feel them. And so the goal would be with very light pressure, uh, we can feel the spine, uh, we can feel the hip bones. Uh, now, if we have to really start pushing to feel the spine or feel the hip bones, she's starting to lay on a lot of condition. If they're protruding and without even pushing, we can feel them. She's probably on the thinner side of things. And so it doesn't have to be overly complicated, but just keeping it as simple as that. And we can be fairly successful. And within that system or within any of the systems that we'll talk about, usually, you know, you're going to have somebody on the, the backside of these females, either, you know, saying that they're thin, they're fat or they're ideal. And then you'll have somebody at the front uh, adjusting the feed boxes, or as you're going down the line, you can use a uh, paint stick to go ahead and you know, do a plus sign, a minus sign, or uh, some sort of an ideal sign. And then you can walk back in front of those females and adjust their feed boxes accordingly. Uh, so that was the, the visual um, and or palpating. We really feel like you need to get your hands on these females. Um, you know, not, not in any aggressive way, but just a light pressure to, to see what kind of condition that these females are laying on. Because there are those sows that, especially as they're getting bigger and older and starting to lay on some frame size, they might look large but they might be more in ideal condition or vice versa. Uh, and so to feel them is what allows us to truly tell what condition they're in. The other one, which is the most accurate and kind of the gold standard would be actually using an, an ultrasound to determine their back fat, finding that last rib and placing the ultrasound reader on the loin eye and seeing how much condition those females actually have. That can be a, a little tricky. And anytime you incorporate technology into a hog barn, there's always some room for error and a team member kind of having some issues with that particular piece of equipment. The, then the last one is the, the newest technology and uh, technology that uh, has really become popular within a lot of the larger systems. Uh, as we start talking about trying to make our body condition scoring as consistent as possible, and that would be the Knauer sow caliper. And what that does is we find the last rib and we place that caliper across the midline and that'll measure the width of that female. And with that, we can determine how much condition that female is actually laying on. And there's stickers on that caliper that say, is she in the thin condition? Is she ideal? Or is she starting to be fat? And then we can adjust accordingly from that standpoint. And that's that adjustment and how much to adjust. That's where we can really fine tune some of those animals. And you know, some farms, we might be talking a, a pound adjustment especially if we're doing it, you know, on odd intervals. But if we do a routine adjustment, you know, maybe it's just a, a quarter or a half pound and that'll make the difference. And we can really fine tune those animals and get them into the right body condition score. And I imagine Brady that you really want to find somebody that knows what they're doing, because I'm sure all three of these methods will work for a producer 
find one that works for them and find somebody that that knows what they're doing. That is a great point, Curtis. Every single one of these systems works, uh, but every single one of them can cause issues if not implemented correctly. And so it's all about just making sure that the team members execute the processes correctly uh, and that they do so on a consistent basis. So how often should a producer or someone that's working in the farm body condition score? Great question. And, you know, uh, as we we go across the industry, uh, there's a wide array of kind of standard protocols that different farms will use. Some farms will will do it when they're they're mating them and then when they're preg check and they kind of just put them on autopilot from that point forward. Other farms, and this would be, you know, kind of the minimum of what we would say as ideal would be every 30 days. So if we say when we breed that female, we'll body condition score her and then adjust the feed box accordingly at preg check around that 35 day number and then at day 60 and 90. And the goal would be by the time we get to day 90, we're able to make a very minor change because she should be in a good condition score by that time if we've done what we need to do on the previous measurements. But really, if we want to get these females into ideal condition and really have a very consistent herd, our top farms, our top producers, body condition score every two weeks. And I know that that sounds like a lot, but it's an investment that Uh, We'll definitely pay dividends as we start looking at total productivity. And those farms that do this every two weeks, it's not just a, uh, you know, a new hire or a new team member that's responsible for this. It is the farm manager or the gestation lead that is responsible for body condition scoring. And they are the only ones that can do it. And they do it on a very strict schedule uh, to make sure that there's no uh, issues or, or no females missed in the chain. Uh, and so having that single person, uh, Curtis, back to your point on making sure that it's a trained technician that can execute this correctly is absolutely critical. Yeah, just really, it keeps that consistency. You absolutely. bet. So how much Brady should we feed the DNA female? Yeah, great, great question. And this is something that we at DNA really believe is a strength of the DNA female. Uh, I mentioned earlier what overfeeding costs, you know, a buck fifty a pig. Um, out the door. I mean, that's that's a major driver of potential profitability. Uh, and we would view that same thing as our difference compared to some of the other genetic lines out there. Our DNA recommendations versus some of the competitors would be in that pound to pound and a half per day difference. And so I'm going to throw out some, some numbers that would be used as an average. And these are averages based on a, a specific nutrient requirement. But you know, make sure to check with your nutritionist uh, if these do seem quite a bit different than what you're currently doing to make sure that they do fit your diet because we, we don't want to uh, push the envelope too far and start underfeeding these females if um, and, and potentially lead to some challenges. But as we start off, uh, we're going to wean a female, you know, move her into that breed row. We want to get as much feed into that female that first four to five days as possible. Uh, we want to put her into a positive energy state. Uh, and set her up for success. Now, a lot of times those females coming out of lactation, uh, they're drying up and they, they might go off feed or they might not clean up six to eight pounds. But uh, if we can get, you know, six pounds is kind of a minimum threshold for that time frame, and really probably targeting trying to get as close to that eight pound number as possible, uh, we'll really set ourselves up for success. Then once we go ahead and breed that female, we can start to push her back. And so then we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, we, we can maybe go to that four and a half pound as an, as an average, but we don't want to go below four pounds for that first 30 days. So from the time we breed her till preg check, we do want to be fairly cognizant of our minimum threshold just because 
that's when she's implanting her embryos and we want to do everything we can not to stress those females out. We would like to say, you know, around a four pound minimum, but probably targeting that, that four and a half pound number. But after we get past preg check, those embryos are implanted, we can start to get fairly aggressive. And so even if a, a, a female's on the heavier side, you know, going to four pounds that first 30 days, it'll start to pull a little condition off, but it won't stress her. But if we have females that are still fairly chuffy after that 35 day mark, you know, we, we aren't afraid to go three and a half, three pounds, um, especially as we're, we're looking at a, a trough type feeder. Uh, when you're do, using an ESF, you know, maybe we, we want to be a little bit more cognizant of how low we're going. But uh, one of the things about the, the trough feeders is, you know, you have those those females that steal from each other. Uh, usually those bigger females are the ones that just eat a little bit faster. And so we want to be careful on how we place those females in gestation. But that really preg check all the way up through farrowing, you know, if we're, we're hitting a four pound average and that's females, you know, anywhere from three to five pounds, uh, we're in good shape. And, and the other part about that is if we are checking them every two weeks, you know, we can catch females that might be starting to put on a little extra condition or, or starting to come, pull off a little condition and get them adjusted accordingly. But really don't be afraid to, to go outside of that range if it's necessary. If you have a really thin sow, you know, if you need to go up to six to eight pounds, or if you have a female that's just really heavy, and especially, you know, if she's has that feeder uh, at the very start of the feed line where it just keeps adding a little bit more feed as, as that feed line's running and, and she, you know, you might have her set at three, but she's really getting three and a quarter, three and a half. You know, don't be afraid to go just a, just a touch lighter. And the other thing with that is make sure that we're checking our feed boxes, uh, especially as we have major diet changes and as new crop corn, uh, we're in that time of year with new crop corn coming through in our diets, making sure that we understand what that weight is and what that feed box setting really means. Uh, if, if, you know, it's, I've seen farms where, you know, they had kind of the same feed box setting for a year or two. And all of a sudden these females just started getting thin on them and they were confused because, uh, they'd been feeding the same amount for a couple of years. Well, the diets had changed, the density of the diets had changed. Um, and so they were actually giving those females less than what they initially realized. Uh, so make sure we understand what the, the feeder is actually putting out, uh, and when our diets are changing. And the, the last point with this, and I, I briefly touched on the fact that, you know, there are sows that eat a little quicker than others. And generally those quicker eating sows are the fat ones. And so I, it's a little extra work, but what's been very helpful for producers on managing body condition and what can really make your, your whole gestation row as consistent as possible is in farrowing, you know, find the, the heaviest 10% and the, the thinnest 10% and identify those. And then as you're going to pull sows out of lactation uh, and send them down to gestation, you know, send your, your thinnest sows first and then your average sows and then send your heaviest sows last. And then the next weaning, you just do the exact opposite. So then you have all of your heavy sows together and all your thin sows together. And you don't have to worry about those, those heavy, fast eating sows stealing from the thinner, slower eating sows that might be right next to them. And when farms that have historically struggled on those females kind of yo-yoing in body condition throughout gestation, you know, having those thin sows right next to those really heavy sows, the farms that have struggled with that, when they've went to that process, they've been able to keep their herd a lot more uniform uh, and increase their productivity because of that. And so, yes, it is a little bit more work while we're already on a time crunch with weaning days. They're already hectic, but that little bit of extra labor can definitely pay dividends down the road. Should a producer bump feed at all? Yeah. So, so great question, Curtis. And uh, I guess probably 
want to take a, a step back and just define what we mean by, by bump feeding. And so in, in this instance, what we're referring to is feeding, uh, you know, maybe a pound of extra feed that last 30 days of gestation. Historically, that, that was to help with our birth weights. You know, make sure that these, these female lines that have been selected for total born, but maybe had just a lighter pig, you know, are we able to push up that weight of those pigs and make them a more viable pig at birth? As we've continued to do the research and, and as our genetic team has made dramatic changes on birth weight, it really is incredible how much change our genetic team has been able to do from a birth weight perspective. The pigs that are coming out of these females today are night and day different than what they were five or six years ago. And so as we, we think about that, and as we realize that the, the pigs that these F1 females are having are very respectable from a birth weight perspective, we would not see an advantage to bump feeding for the majority of our females. Now, if you have a thin sow or especially a thin gilt, it's still a value to bump feed that female. We want to get her in the right condition. And if she's really thin going into farrowing, we, we could have some issues there, just not able to consume enough lactation feed intake, uh, maybe have a, a touch increase in stillborns and some smaller pigs. So we want to push those females that might be just on the thinner side at day 90, but, but hopefully we've done a good job so we don't have many of those. But for the majority of our females that are in ideal body condition, all we will do is end up hurting those females, push them up into that heavy side, they're heavy, they're going to have a higher rate of stillborns and they're going to have a lower, lower lactation feed intake. So today we would not recommend bump feeding. However, what we've done is we're still feeding that same amount of feed. What we've done is we've taken that extra pound and really just applied it for that first 30 days of that gestation time frame. And that's what I was referencing on that, you know, that four pound minimum from breed to preg check, making sure that we're getting that feed into those females when they need it and then setting those embryos. And then we seem to be off to a, a really good really good start overall. Yeah. No need to necessarily bump feed, but I think that's a testament to what the genetic team has been able to accomplish. We actually had a trial that recently completed here and it was the same sow farm as what we ran a trial at four years ago. And the, the really cool part was the same sow farm, same management. When we went in and weighed those birth weights, uh, we were able to increase the average weight by a 10th of a pound. And you might say, well, that doesn't seem like much. But where the majority of that change came from was on those pigs under two pounds. And if you, if you think about it, those are those smaller pigs that, you know, have a lower likelihood of being weaned and then are always going to be a challenge from a, just a growth perspective. And so with those pigs under two pounds, we actually cut it in half, you know, from that, that eight to 10% thresh number to four to 5%. And so all of a sudden our pre-win mortality numbers that we're seeing coming from these females, uh, we've seen some dramatic improvements with our, our F1 herds, as well as our purebred Yorkshire line, uh, within our, our purebred Yorkshire herds, if we were compared today versus four or five years ago, uh, we've dropped our pre mortality three to 4%. And really that's a testament to the genetic program and, and pushing that birth weight. Brady, it's hard to believe we're at about 20 minutes here. And I think I've only asked you like five or six questions, but I truly think that I could listen to you all day because you've, you've got a lot of really good information and you probably know what question I'm going to ask you next. Any guesses? I have zero guesses. Zero guesses? Well, I feel like I always ask the guests at the very end of the interview, you know, we've talked about a lot of content today. If you had one or two key points that you wanted to send producers home with in regards to body condition scoring, what would maybe one or two key takeaways be? Yeah. So our, our key message when it comes to body condition scoring is first off, do it, do it consistently. And then with that, 
have those females enter farrowing in an athletic body condition, kind of that three minus score. Uh, so that way they can really maximize their productivity. So do body condition scoring consistently and have females enter lactation in an athletic body condition. Brady McNeil, Multiplication Business Lead with DNA Genetics. Brady, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Curtis. On the next episode of Inside the Helix, we're going to cover part four of our five-part series on the five pillars of reproductive care, and that will be focused on the first 48-hour pig care with Dr. Amanda Cross. Until next time, I'm Curtis Harms with Inside the Helix. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Helix, presented by DNA Genetics. Inside the Helix is released every other Tuesday and is focused on what matters to the swine industry. To catch up on previous episodes, visit us online at dnaswinegenetics.com or find us at your favorite podcast streaming platforms. You can also keep up with DNA Genetics throughout the year by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. For Inside the Helix, I'm Curtis Harms. Thank you.